Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we are joined by Dr. Alexander Perlman, who is a gastroenterologist. He graduated from the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and pursued an internal medicine residency at Yale School of Medicine, followed by a fellowship in gastroenterology and hepatology at the University of Connecticut Health Center. Dr. Perlman's areas of expertise include esophageal disease, inflammatory bowel disease, colon cancer screening and prevention, irritable bowel syndrome, and liver disease disease, so things like cirrhosis, fatty liver disease like NASH. Medical education, endoscopic interventions, and quality improvements are among Dr. Perlman's clinical and scientific interests for research. He's written a chapter on esophageal illness in HIV patients. Dr. Perlman is enthusiastic about the patient-centered treatment and spends time on quality improvement programs targeted at improving patient access and results. Although he is often busy with his practice as a gastroenterologist, Dr. Perlman spends his free time discovering new foods and traveling. So, if you want to follow up with him and get an inside glance at the life of a gastroenterologist, you can follow Dr. Perlman on Instagram at thegourmetgi, that's the G-O-U-R-M-A-T-G-I, or on Twitter at Perlman S. Pearls, that's uh, P-E-R-E-L-M-A-N-S-P-E-A-R-L-S. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Perlman to the end. Hello, Dr. Perlman. Uh, happy belated Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm really excited to be here. Got a nice little break, got a chance to spend some time with the family and uh, enjoy it in, uh, in, in good food and just sort of reflect on things we're all grateful for. Perfect, perfect. So you are a food enthusiast, uh, so I can imagine how great your Thanksgiving dinner must have been. V- very much so. But honestly, one of the things I said I was grateful for this year was actually I, I was not the one that had to do any of the cooking. I was mostly uh, my mom and and sort of my in-laws and and my wife actually took on the challenge of dessert and she did a fantastic job. Ah, okay, okay. So like tagging in for the good food. It's okay. We all do it. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I was there for supervision, we'll say, and and taste test. (laughs) Right, right, right. Uh, So we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. um, And I just want to talk about gastroenterology because I think it's probably one of the most diverse specialties that really stems from internal medicine. And what I mean by that is that it literally covers everything from the mouth to the anus with pancreas and livers, I believe. So is that something that kind of like drew you into the field, the vastness of it all? I like how you said from mouth to anus. You know, what I usually tell patients is I'm a GI duck, so we have issues gum to bum. That's me. (laughs) Yeah. Believe it or not, you know, GI is one of those things that sort of exists in this bubble that unless you're actually in the midst of medical training or sort of someone that's close to you struggled with any GI issues, very very often most folks don't even think about it. All they think is, oh, it's poop doctor and you're just dealing with poop and who wants to do that and why in the world would you do that? Um, even even for me as a GI, you know, I, I didn't actually find the field and find all the things that I can do through the field until later on in my medical training. And my best friend struggles with inflammatory bowel disease. And mm-hmm. even even having that proximity, I didn't really know all that much about it until sort of 
a serendipitous accident on um, on my surgery rotation that, that led me down the rabbit hole that is my per- my profession. <laughs> right, right. Um, irritable bowel disease. I think it's like one of the harshest kind of disease to have because it's like lifelong, right? Like if you have like Crohn's. Yes. So one is inflammatory bowel disease. And I think that's what you're thinking about is the inflammatory bowel yeah. disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, uh, whereas irritable bowel mm-hmm. syndrome is a, often sort of confusing uh, entity, but it's also a, a tough thing to struggle with. And especially in young folks, a lot of times, um, you know, they're not taken seriously when they're coming in with, with their concerns, you know, uh, gas, floating, change in bowel movement. Sometimes there's a little bit of embarrassment about, you know, quote unquote, toilet diseases. And so they, they get mislabeled as right. having the wrong diagnosis. And, and by the time they end up seeing an adult gastroenterologist or a pediatric gastroenterologist, they, they may have advanced cases. But it's, it's definitely a tough thing that folks struggle with. Right, right. I guess, did you initially want to do internal medicine and then later decided to further specialize? Or you always knew that you wanted to be a GI doctor? I always had no idea what I wanted to be. <laughs> okay. um, you know, I, I, I think going into college, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I liked biology. I was sort of going that pre-medish, pre-dental, maybe pre-PhD pathway. Towards the end of my, of my, I think it was undergrad, I ran into a new professor on campus. His name was Jimmy Fada. He had just showed up from his PhD completion. He was this really charismatic guy who, who was dedicated to breast cancer and breast cancer sort of developmental biology and mm-hmm. recruited me to his lab. And so after spending time with, with Jimmy, I actually said, I'm going to be an oncologist. I'm going to med school. I'm going to cure breast cancer. This is it for me. Right. Um, so much so that actually in my med school, we didn't even have a, a oncology hematology club. And so I partnered with these three brilliant women and together we came up with the, our interest group, the Hemonc interest group. And sort of that was, that was my pathway all the way through until probably third year of medical school. Um, and then when you get into the real world of actually seeing what, what the practice was like and just realize, you know, I respect the folks who do it. It's an incredibly interesting and hard field, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And then I was just sort of figuring it out as I went. And so there there was a part of me that briefly flirted with things like emergency medicine and orthopedic surgery, but uh, that flirtation was very short-lived. And so I was leaning towards internal medicine. And and then the serendipitous accident was on my surgical rotation, which I, I can honestly say was not my favorite. Um, we had a patient who we did a cholecystectomy. So we did a gallbladder surgery, we removed the gallbladder and they were doing fine. And maybe two, two, three days later, they became jaundice. So very yellow, they developed right. really high fever. So, so what they were presenting with is something called cholangitis. Um, it's an infection, ascending infection of the biliary system. And it, it could be really fatal. It's, it really truly is a, a GI emergency. And this was a Russian speaking patient and I speak Russian. So I volunteered uh, to translate for, for the GI attending who was going to come and talk to the patient about the procedure, the risk, the benefits, et cetera. And so they invited me to participate in the procedure as a medical student, resident, et cetera. When we say participate, we mean I got to stand in the corner and watch as they actually did the <laughs> <Right>. thing. <laughs> Uh, hands off all the way. Hands off. Listen, I, I totally get you. You, you know, it's a, it's a graduated autonomy type of thing. But, you know, the procedure went really well. And within a couple of days, because this was a patient that I sort of has, had been following because of our language um, congruence, she did fantastic. Just watching this person go from, I, I don't want to say death's door, but sort of, okay, not doing well. As yellow as a highlighter, febrile to eating, talking, just back to baseline. And so I, I, I fell in love right then and there. There was intervention that we could do urgently for a patient to take them from death's door to back to baseline. There is the medical component where you get to think about things like the liver, GI tract, 
in terms of uh, constipation, bleeding, pancreatic insufficiency, uh, viral hepatitis, all of these other things. And at the same time, you can intervene and actually make make folks better. That's such a beautiful story. I mean, it really highlights how much patient interactions can influence a lot of our decisions. So... Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I, I would even go so far as to say it's not just the patient interaction, it's it's uh, the attending and the fellow mm. interaction, I think, right? Uh, sort of reflecting on the fact I wasn't having a good time on my surgical rotation. But the GI attending uh, who took interest in the fact that I seemed interesting, uh, interested rather, and, and the fact that they were le- willing to let me participate in the patient's care and they were le- letting me be in the room and to see this, right? Those, those are the experiences that right. you sort of want to have to encourage the next generation as well. It's kind of interesting that you say that you didn't like your surgical rotations because GI is a combination of procedures along with clinical patients seeing them longitudinally. So uh, I guess... Are there any differences in terms of the surgical procedures that you did in those rotations versus like GI procedures? I, I think there are a few differences. So I think part of it, honestly, is it's, it's a personality mesh. And it's not to say that all surgeons are not kind people because some of the surgeons I work with now are the kindest, most fantastic people that I've ever come across. When I was a kid, I had a surgery. I still remember this gentleman's name, Harold Van Bosa. He's an orthopedic surgeon and he was incredible. So I, it's not fair to say surgical personalities are, are not the, the main reason. It's, I think it's more of a, it's the personality it takes to go into surgery. It's the, can you stand here for four hours retracting while someone is pimping you? The pimping meaning that they're just firing questions at you until you get something wrong. Uh. Um, you know, is that something that you enjoy? Um, it was not. And the reality is I don't want to stand there for four hours to dissect the plane to get to the thing that I want to do. Um, endoscopy is not that. Endoscopy is a relatively quick intervention, right? Mm-hmm. So a regular upper endoscopy, even with some intervention, is looking at around 15 to 30 minutes. A regular colonoscopy is around the same ballpark, probably 30 to 40 minutes. And there's many procedures that are now sort of um, – on the borderline of what used to become surgery that is now actually endoscopically done. So it's advanced endoscopy and advanced interventional um, therapeutic procedures that I don't do those, but my my colleagues and some of my partners do. Yeah, yeah. Like endoscopic ultrasounds, I think, are very widely used in in this field, as well as some of the other fields too. So how do you see this specialty advancing with new endoscopic technologies? Do you know of any of these advancements? Oh, there's there's so plenty. I mean, there's... uh, the most interesting ones I think that are coming to to the endoscopy suite right now are essentially, as I said, the, the things that used to be surgery, right. right? So we used to take, we went from diagnostic colonoscopy where we find polyps and we can't do anything about them and we send them to surgery. Uh, this was years ago. Then we had giants and pioneers from Japan and, and Dr. Je- uh, Jerry Way from Mount Sinai in New York who, who pioneered electrocautery and the endoscopic uh, polypectomy, meaning there's essentially a cheese wire that goes around the, the abnormal mucosa that is the polyp and you cut it and you cut it either with, with using electrocautery so it doesn't bleed okay. or just with attention and essentially just cheese wire it across. So now we went from diagnostic colonoscopy to able to remove the polyp and now we're pushing the envelope of what we can do, how big of a polyp. So now we went from polypectomy to endoscopic mucosal resection. Mm-hmm. So now there's something that was too big for us to take out. And so we found it. We send it to our surgical colleagues. Now we find it. We send it to people who do these advanced therapeutic procedures who can actually do a lift and remove that polyp. And you save a patient a surgery. You save the patient's colon 
Um, now there's endoscopic submucosal dissection, so it keeps advancing. Now we also do th something called POEM, which is a, uh, a essentially notes a natural orifice uh, surgery, essentially. And what it is, it's um, I don't know if you're familiar with a disease called echolasia. Okay. It's a it's a I'm problem not, with yeah. the muscle. Yeah, so it's a problem with the muscles of the esophagus, the food pipe, and it, essentially the muscle can't relax. And so what we used to have to do is we used to go to surgery. People used to have a bunch of ports put into the upper part of the abdomen, and the surgeon used to make a cut in the muscle of the esophagus. That was called a Heller myotomy. Um, and now we can do POEM, which is a port per oral endoscopic myotomy. In other words, instead of going to an OR and having surgery, a advanced therapeutic endoscopist can make a little bleb, a tunnel, and do the myotomy endoscopically and then close it back up. Again, no surgery, longer myotomy. It's effective. It's it's incredible. And just watching all of these advancements are, are just fascinating. Yeah. Is that kind of similar to dysphagia? Because that's something I have uh, heard about, like how GI doctors also have to handle dysphagia and just like the mouth closing and yeah, swallowing. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's a great question. So dysphagia is difficulty swallowing, right? Right. And so there's many reasons for difficulty swallowing. Achalasia certainly is one of them. There are things like esophageal stricture, so people who struggle with long-term reflux disease, folks who may have at a young age accidentally or even intentionally ingested something like lye or something like that that causes scarring, inflammation mm -hmm. of the esophagus that will cause it to have a difficult time actually propelling that food. And that is that is what dysphagia essentially is. The medical word for hard time swallowing. Okay, I see. Right, And so that's what we're dealing with. Um, and so the advanced therapeutic procedures definitely have a role there, but a lot of the very sort of basic, not not basic, but not as advanced things like stricture management and things like that, that those are some of the things that I do and some of my colleagues who do general GI. I mean, yeah, something that stood out to me is the how with the advancements in these technologies, you are able to also have like participate with, the, with a lot of the other different specialties as well. Mm -hmm. And... That's really great. So the other thing is, I think um, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like what really makes GI is one of the most interesting fields is because you can merge clinical longitudinal care while also performing procedures. So this is often, often again, like not the case with a lot of other specialties because you either go in, you know, heavily into one side and not the other. So what percentage ratio would you say your work falls for these two categories? Like maybe 40% long-term care versus 60% procedures? So I, I think, you know, um, there's this notion of proceduralist versus a, not a proceduralist. And I, I think divorcing the procedural part of what we do is, is what gives people this idea, right? If you're a hammer, everything's a nail. I, I want you to think of it as any doctor, any physician with any specialty is sort of the multi-tool, right? So there's time where procedures are, are important and they're necessary. There are times where sitting down and having a 20, 30 minute conversation with a patient about their symptom is necessary. And so I, I wouldn't suggest divorcing okay. those things because this, this creates an unfair dichotomy for, for, any procedurals, but more important for, for the patient, for the doctor, right? Um, so I think if you look at my general practice, I have five days in, in, that I'm working during the week. Um, in that time, I do two procedural days right. and the rest of the time is office time. Uh, but there are days where I've had patients come in and it's not my procedural day, but they very clearly need a procedure and it's the next day that they're going to get it. And then I will talk to my colleagues. I will make some space um, in my in my calendar and we'll go and do that procedure. I realistically would say in terms of what proportion of my time is spent doing procedures versus what proportion of my time is spent um, in the clinic, I would say approximately maybe... 
two days, maybe two half days. So realistically, somewhere in the ballpark of 10 to 12 hours or so of a, of a 50 hour work week is spent doing the procedures. But then it, it comes in waves, right? Some, sometimes folks need more procedures and less office time. And sometimes folks need more office time and less procedures. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. We're going to kind of segue into uh, something like other, I guess, public misconceptions about GI doctors. And it's something that you mentioned. It's uh, dealing with bodily fluids and feces a lot. So how does that uh, public perception hold? Like, are there any truths to it? I, I, I always refer my patients to the very simple book that I read to my kids, which is Everybody Poops, okay. right? It's, yeah. it's it's no it's normal let's all get over it it's, it's normal bodily functions um realistically speaking i think when when i'm seeing folks right no one's coming in and having a bowel movement in my office for the sake of a bowel movement people are, who are not not well we we want those bowel movements we send them off for culture but with the exception of that right it's more of a symptom it's pain they tell me about the experience of that and during the procedure, right? Like the, the most important thing that folks do is actually do the preparation, which is a clean out. Like laxatives? More, laxatives, exactly. Because so, you think about it, right? The, the, the sort of analogy I use is this. When we're doing a colonoscopy, we're doing it to look for things that are bleeding, to look for things that are inflamed, to look for polyps. And so think of it as race car driving, right? You could be the best race car driver in the world. You could have the best car. And yet, if the road is not clean, mm. there's going to be an issue. And so that's the same idea. If we're doing a colonoscopy because we need to find something, if we need to address something, then the most important thing is going to be the clean out because I can control everything on my end. I right. can't control the clean out. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So so you don't need to like be not as sensitive to bodily fluids. That's, listen, honestly, w- once you get into med school, all, all the sort of misconceptions of, oh, I can't tolerate blood, I can't tolerate mucus. All that goes away, right? Like there is a comfort that you develop after you spend hours and hours on in uh, in the anatomy lab where you come home and you're still hungry and you're like, hmm, okay, I'm going to go eat food after I just spent six hours in a cadaver lab. Or, you know, you're you're on shift and you've done a couple of disimpactions and and you've done some blood draws and all these other things. And you know what? You still have to live. So you're still going to go have your coffee. You're still going to have something to eat. And there comes a moment where it stops bothering you. You're you're desensitized at a certain point. Hmm. Yeah. You completed your residency at Yale School of Medicine or and I think that's very impressive because, you know, it is very difficult to match into. Now, did the residency experience hold up to your expectations? I think it was great. So I actually I, I was at uh, Yale School of Medicine, but Yale has one internal medicine department and it has a couple of sub programs within that department. So there's the what we call the traditional track, which is the same three years predominantly spent on the inpatient service side with some outpatient exposure. There is a combined med peds, which is a, I think, a four-year program that when you're completed, you are you are eligible for board certification in internal medicine as well as pediatrics. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Yale primary care program, which is also a three-year program, which has a different distribution of sort of, uh, of time spent inpatient and outpatient. And I was actually in the Yale primary care program. It was fantastic. It was, you know, it was a perfect, I think, sort of mix and match between the inpatient side, the outpatient side. I mean, look, I'm an outpatient gastroenterologist, and I had the the privilege of being at a academic center right. with high degree of acuity, really interesting, complex cases, all the things that come with being at Yale in terms of the tertiary center and all that stuff. But I also spent a lot of time learning how to run an efficient clinic. I spent a lot of time learning how to improve that flow of my clinic, learning how to manage my clinical day. And 
I'm an outpatient gastroenterologist, and I, I think I, I can't really put a value on the lessons I got there. So absolutely, the experience was amazing. Okay, that's good to hear. So I guess one of the key takeaways from that experience was uh, time management and really just dealing with, as you said, efficiency. I, I think the key the key thing I would take away is honestly finding your people. Mm, okay, right? Like you you got to be at, you got to be at a place where the culture is what you believe in. And, and then the efficiency, all those things are going to come, right? Every single medical school. You, they click into place. Right. Like, look, every medical school you're going to get into is certified to produce doctors. Every residency you're going to get into is certified and closely monitored by the ACGME to produce someone eligible to sit for the boards. So that is going to happen. Now, the part is, is it going to happen in a supportive environment with people who are your people who are going to help get you to your goals? And so that's the thing I would always tell folks to look for. Not the name and not anything else. I was actually talking to a plastic surgeon like uh, a few days ago, and he was telling me the same thing. It's like, if you are going to be applying for a residency program, the main thing, it doesn't matter what it is, the main thing that you need to like look out for are the is the team that you're going to be working with, if they're supportive or not. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters because you're spending so much time in the clinic and so much time you know, working. So if it's not a healthy environment, it's... it's it's just not going to work out. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think even in my experience, right? I just told you, I went to a primary care residency program. I went into a pretty procedural heavy subspecialty. And one of the things that I was worried about when I made that decision was, you know, did I betray what I said I was going to do when I came to do primary care? Um, and my mentors and every single person was nothing but supportive, right? They, they connected me with people uh, that would help get sort of some projects under my belt. They connected me with people um, that sort of went through a similar experience and 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 could reflect upon their own sort of thoughts of that and, and, and their growth. And so it, it was incredible. And that's what you want to look for, whether in med school, whether, whether in residency or professionally when you're done. Yeah. So you just talked about med school. Um, and there is a misconception of the whole MD versus DO schooling systems, although they're both the same, like at this uh, stage. So would you say graduating from a DO school made it so that you had to work a bit harder or needed higher metrics to match into a competitive residency program? Yes. Honestly, yes. Um, I, I, I think it's changing a lot now, right? So <clears throat> it, it's a little bit uh, shocking to say, but so I started medical school in 2010. So we're talking like 11 years ago, which means I'm getting old, which is not nice. Um, <laughs> but at that time, some of the conversation I still remember from the pre-med committees was, well, if you go to a DO school, it's going to be harder to get in. I said, oh, that, that's not true. Um, it was true. I remember then when we, one of the things that I ended up doing is I took both USMLEs and Comlex. Uh, Comlex is the, is the licensing examination for folks going through DO, which is a mandatory thing for DOs, whereas USMLE is the test that MD students take and they can't right. sit for the comp. And so I didn't take USMLE step one because I said, Hey, I did great on Comlex. It's going to be fantastic. You know, I was in my DO school. Everyone's a happy camper. And then I got into, into rotations with, uh, with MD students and DO students and MD faculty. And I was talking to a program director. Um, and I mentioned, you know, I'm interested in this in this location? Do I have a chance? This is sort of my numbers, et cetera. And, and they looked at me and said, if you want to get in here, you need USMLEs. Mm. He, said, I don't, he said, I don't know what to do with the DO numbers. Right? And like that, that, that was the reality back then. And so, yeah, I think it was definitely harder to get to better places. It was definitely harder to get into competitive spots as a DO. But I think that's also 11 years ago. 
right? So now there's a unified GME. So there's right. no longer a DO only residency and an MD only residency. So combined, I think it's probably no longer the case, especially as the generations of DOs coming up are not sort of the old, old school with all the biases that go with that. I, I think that's getting better and going away. So I, I'm hopeful that in, by the time your friends are applying, that that's no longer going to hold true. Yeah, thank you. Do you have any favorite failures from medical school or residency that really stood out to you or taught you a lot? Oh boy, uh, I don't think I have a favorite failure. It's a no one likes to fail, right? I, I think I have uh, favorite moments of uh, of self reflection as well. What I'd, I'd like to think of. That's perfect. I, I think some of them come right, like during. Um, frustrating times during 28 hour shift when there's a difficult case where there's a difficult situation and you have to sort of walk away from that and, and think to yourself if you did as good of a job as you could. And so I, I think, you know, looking back on, on some of mine, I, I think the one that sticks out to me was actually, um, it was actually something that I didn't even know happened. So it was, um, I, I was the senior resident. We had signed out a patient and they were not yet transferred. And someone asked me something about the patient and my response was, oh, I, we transferred the patient. Right. Right. That was, that was my response. Someone asked a clinical question about the patient. I said, oh, well, we transferred the patient. I didn't even think twice about it. And I remember that um, I sat down with one of my mentors and said, you know, that this senior, this other senior resident that asked you that question. Actually, we had 360 um, evaluations of one another actually noted that at that moment, they felt you did not have ownership of your patient, right? And so that was one of my uh, favorite failures or one of my favorite moments of self-reflection where what we portray to the world, what we convey to the world, with our, whether it's with our words or with our actions, it has meaning, right? So although I felt comfortable like I knew the patient, when someone who asked me for information on said patient felt I, I did not convey that, right? And so I think that was an important moment to sort of take a step back and say, are we communicating the way we should be? Are we conveying the information that we should be? Do we just sort of take for granted that people know our intent and our assumption? Right? And that's sort of, if you think about conversations and culture today, that's that really is an important thing to take away, right? That 360 communication, that closed loop communication. So I, I think that was one of my favorite things that happened because it changed the way I communicate about patients to make sure that everyone's on the same page. That's really inspiring because considering that doctors, you know, there is this thing where like doctors are overworked and you are still trying to actively push forth, I guess, adequate communication, which I would say is still like very hard to do when you are, you know, running on coffee for like um, however long and it just that, that's kind of, I mean I, that's kind of you to say I will say that part of that also again going back to right the environment you come from right like if you're in a place where this is the expectation then you're going to live up to that expectation so although I, I'd like to say thank you yay me I'm going to say thank you yay people who, who helped me learn and to get better so I'm going to give the props to the to the mentors rather than myself here, here. Uh, are there any, I guess, one of your favorite procedures to like perform as a GI doctor or some of the cases that you see really like stands out to you where it's like, oh, that that's really cool. Like, I'm, I'm glad to be a GI doctor. Oh, I love all the procedures. I, I, I live for procedures. It's like my favorite, you know, I think one of the best parts, you know, if you think of Garfield, <laughs> yeah. the cartoon, ugh, Mondays. So my procedure, my procedure block is Monday morning. So I actually, I love Mondays. Endoscopy, colonoscopy, polypectomy, dilation. I love them. I love them for different reasons, right? So when I'm doing endoscopy for someone who comes in and say, 
I have a hard time swallowing. I know that by the time of this conversation, they are worried that they have a narrowing, like a stricture. They're worried that they have esophageal cancer. They're very fearful. So I know that by the time we finish the procedure, we're going to have some answers for them. Potentially, if there's a stricture, we can dilate it, meaning that we can blow up a little balloon across it and make the opening wider. And so they're going to feel better. And we can more likely than not, because esophageal cancer is actually not that common in this country, we can we can actually cross that off their list of worries. So I, I love that for, for those reasons. Uh, colonoscopy, it's colon cancer prevention, right? We, we talk about uh, colon cancer prevention. We talk about, um, we talk about screening. So screening is identifying a disease early. Prevention is, I keep you from getting that disease. So the reason I love colonoscopy is because we do screening colonoscopies, meaning that the person has no history of colorectal cancer. There's no family history of colorectal cancer. We do this procedure and we find polyps. Now, not all polyps are going to be a cancer, but if I find it and I take it out, it can't be a cancer. It's on my pathologist table. So I love that. I get to tell people, hey, listen, you had one, two, three, five polyps. You don't have them anymore. They're not going to be a cancer. I'm going to bring you back a little bit sooner, but they're not there. You are not going to have colon cancer. And that's awesome. Are there any linkages between Crohn's disease and uh, colon cancer? Like, is there any, I guess, association? Yeah. So inflammatory bowel disease, we know, puts people at higher risk for developing colorectal cancer. Um, Usually part of that conversation is long-term inflammation that comes with inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease, like ulcerative colitis. And over time, if that inflammation is uncontrolled, we could start having uh, accumulation of of DNA breakages and mutations and things of that nature that ultimately will develop into dysplasia. And from that dysplasia will actually advance to advanced um, neoplasia, so advanced cancer. So one of the reasons uh, that we do frequent surveillance colonoscopies on patients with inflammatory bowel disease is after eight years, uh, in general speaking, after eight years of having the disease, that's when the risk goes up. So we start doing screening and surveillance colonoscopy every one to two years for those. I see, I see. All right. So I'm going to actually segue into something else, which is nutrition. I think uh, one of the unique aspects of GI is that you can come across patients who have trouble with nutrition or, or things like that. So with that said, I think the field of nutrition has the most diverse research out there. For instance, you can find a research article that says coffee is bad for your heart versus another that says it's good for your heart, right? So being involved with research yourself and being a GI doctor um, who is also you know, very much into uh, cooking and things like that. So what would your general recommendation for food intake be? Yeah, yes. So that's, that's honestly a loaded question. I think the... Politically correct answer is a Mediterranean-like diet, uh, predominantly focusing on uh, on whole foods, not overprocessed things, uh, avoiding excessive alcohol, avoiding excessive sugars, uh, trying to find a balance with you know red meat and then maybe focus on fish and, and plant-based proteins. I think that's sort of the overall. This is the way to do this healthy. I think all the dietary extremes that we start seeing that are being popularized, like keto, intermittent fasting, and all these things, I'm not actually a big fan of them. Some of them have a role depending on what the person is trying to do. Um, but I, I think overall, it's just it's not something that, that I feel strong about in terms of forcing our, our patients to do. I think the other meaningful thing and really important to recognize right, is, is the role of a good registered dietitian or a good nutritionist in, in, in the practice. And that's, that's sort of the, the multidisciplinary approach. You know, I have a lot of folks who have 
irritable bowel syndrome. And we talk about elimination diets and things like that. And a lot of them do a really good job and, and they succeed. And some of them have a hard time getting to the, the goal we set up. As, as much counseling as I want to do and as much as I, I can try to do, I know that them sitting down with a nutritionist for an hour will make a world of difference. So, so that's, that's the other part of it, I think, is you know, GI, we definitely have a lot of exposure to nutrition. But it's not, it's not enough to sit there and say, okay, you're a person who struggles with complex, you know, restrictive food disorders or complex behaviors that, that I can, you know, fix. I, I think the multidisciplinary approach is, is necessary there. Mm, yeah. You're very much involved with your hobbies, uh, especially your Instagram. I, I was taking a look at it and it's like filled with just like gorgeous foods. Uh, and also I, I read that you're very much into traveling as well. So do you think those two, along with maybe some of your other hobbies that you would like to talk about, do you think they help with kind of mitigating burnout or keeping it sane after having a hard week? Yeah. I, I think honestly, anything that, that sort of brings joy to you that isn't a chore. Is is definitely a, a tool to help mitigate burnout. I mean, I, I think also just the sense of community that it creates, right? Like, just like you mentioned, the the food pictures all over my Instagram. Yeah, those, I love making those, and I love sharing that, right? So, like, I, I love cooking for my family. I love having friends over and and sort of having them partake in our food and just good conversation. And you know, it's not about oh, look, look what I can do. So much more of. I'm really enjoying this time that we have together and we're breaking bread. So that's, that's definitely, definitely a, a good strategy for, for burnout alleviation. Uh, in terms of travel, uh, it, it's, it's honestly been a little bit more challenging with, uh, with two little ones and, you know, COVID. Uh, but one of these days, one of these days, I'll get back out there. I see. So, so the hobbies, they, they're really like, I guess, a way to interact with your community and interact with your friends and to stimulate that conversation. So, so you have that support system, I guess. I mean, there's definitely a little, a little something nice about the bragging rights of look what I can do without it being, you know, too obnoxious. Right, right. So now, unfortunately, we are near the end of the podcast. However, as per the title of the podcast, Doctors In, uh, let's just go through a guided story as a closing remark. So we like to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctors In to rest for lunch. Uh, now, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is here, me, ask you to uh, share one quote or piece of advice that really, uh, I guess, changed your life or that you really look up to so that I can frame it on my wall. So what would that piece of advice be? So this piece of advice, honestly, is, is relatively new to me. Um, so I was just in the Young Physician Leadership uh, Scholars Program through the American College of Gastroenterology. And one of the speakers, Mark Prochapin, said, the grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. And that was as simple a revelation as anyone's ever just no kidding, right? Like, it's not better if you go somewhere else, it's better if the thing that's not good, you make better, right? So so that that is the biggest piece of advice I, I think that we should all take away because it's always easy to find, right, the bad stuff, the, the stuff to complain about it. It's human nature, we can always nitpick on a little something here or there. But taking that and saying, instead of, oh, I wish it was like that over there, but saying, what can I do to make it better here? Mm. And so I, I think that's that's the biggest piece that I've honestly started to incorporate in my in my own day to day. And I'm so strongly recommended to anybody out there. That's a very uh, strong quote. All right. So thank you so much, Dr. Perlman, for taking your time out for this. I mean, this was a very informative and uh, information packed episode. So we had, so the listeners definitely have to dissect a little bit. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. And uh, I think it's wonderful what you guys are doing. I think it's so amazing that you're still committing to our profession. I know if you, if I spoke to a lot of other people, they say, oh, I've met a doctor and they told me don't do it. I say do it. Just make sure you love it. It's an incredible career. You're going to make such a difference in, in patients' life. And so I, I think it's just so important that, that we still value what, what we get to do. Here, here. All right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch our animated videos for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow Dr. Perlman on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great time. Bye.